Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. This team is made up of talented, interesting, smart, and funny women. It's full of wonderful and diverse personalities, characters, and stories. These are emboldened athletes, unafraid to be themselves, to use their voice and platform to stand up for what they believe in, to highlight what they see as injustice, and to motivate and inspire young and old with their actions on and off the field. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about the U.S. women's national team. We will have our Mossy Makes the Case segment about fans lowering their expectations. We will be answering your questions in our hashtag Ask Alexi segment with a bunch of Women's World Cup stuff and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a Fox soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you, Mossy? I am good. Uh, Lexi, uh, last week I experienced a roller coaster of emotions. Lay it on me, my man. Because you're a lover, not a fighter. I know that about you. On Tuesday morning, I saw a bunch of tweets alluding to the fact that Fox Sports Digital had won an Emmy for its World Cup coverage. And I immediately reached out to Alex Dow to ask, hey, Alexi and I co-hosted a podcast uh, during the World Cup that was available on all the Fox Sports Digital platforms. Does right. that mean we won an Emmy? He said yes. So I was very excited. And then I later found out that Fox Sports in general won an Emmy for its coverage. And I saw a list of all the people that won it. And it was pretty much everybody that's ever worked at Fox Sports. And so the air went out of the balloon a little bit. I felt like Elaine when the doctor called the ugly baby breathtaking. So, so we did not win an Emmy then, is what we you're did, but along we, with We and the, the greater we, as Fox did, but yes. we, in terms of us in this room, did not yeah, win Yeah, I thought it. it was a smaller group, but apparently everybody won one, so. Oh, so you did win an Emmy. It's just you're angry that you weren't part of the group or... I don't understand. Are you part of the group or not? Did you win an Emmy? Yes. You did. Well, congratulations on, uh, on winning that uh, winning that Emmy. Uh, I uh, I was not. I did not have any knowledge of this. So congratulations to everybody that won an Emmy. I continue to watch this show of yours. Uh, the uh, what do they call again? Game of Game Thrones. Game of Thrones. I am in season three. Oh wow. My my wife, who I love, loved, is all the way in season six. Gone well ahead of me. Okay, and she teases me on a consistent basis saying, oh, did you know? And then she stops short and, you know, I'll be watching something and she says, have you come to the part with? And she's just she's brutal in, in that sense. Uh, once again, I continue to understand now why all the hoopla about this. Um, it's, it's basically porn. Okay, I mean, the amount of nakedness that goes on and sex and violence is crazy. Is it gratuitous? Depends on your, your, what you think of it. Uh, but I, I can't stop watching it. 
But I come up with other people and I say, I've, I'm doing this now. And a lot of them say, oh, you're going to be so disappointed. And I don't let that affect me. I am, I am into it. I am going to finish this thing out. Hopefully I can finish it by the time I leave for, uh, for France so I can have bottled it and I can give you my, my, um, you know, my final review of whether this has lived up or not. But it's, it's very confusing, Mossy, uh, for a little brain like me. And I feel like I have to take notes on it because there's so many names and so many storylines. Uh, d- did it ever confuse you while you were watching this show or did you just the savant as we, as we know? And no, it's, it's a lot of characters to keep track of. And y- you'll notice when you get to the end, there are callbacks from things that happened in the first or second season that oh, nobody really? could possibly remember. And so you have to go read the blogs and they tell you, oh, this was in reference to something that happened in season two. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it can be complicated for sure. Well, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm spoiling this for anybody, but I am at the point where, let's see, I'll just give you an idea of what, what that means in season three. If I could remember their names, I would, but I can't. But um, the guy that slept with his twin sister just got his hand cut off, which was... Jamie Lannister, my favorite character. Okay, well, he's incredibly beautiful. And yet, there is, there is a heart in there that we have seen because he has come back for the, uh, the, the big, tall, blonde uh, woman that was uh, supposed to be taking him to jail or something Brienne. like that. Brienne. Yeah, that, that relationship will blossom later on. Well, well, don't give it away. What is your problem? You're like my wife. God, I am like your wife in many ways. Uh, <laughs> all right, enough of this Game of Thrones stuff. Uh, we will continue uh, on because, as we know, winter is coming. Okay, you ready? Light yep. this candle. All right, as you know, each and every week we kick the pod off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. The Women's World Cup kicks off next week in France, which means Americans will once again have the opportunity to follow and cheer a U.S. national team that is not only actually in a World Cup, but as defending champions, has a good chance of winning another World Cup. This team is made up of talented, interesting, smart, and funny women. It's full of wonderful and diverse personalities, characters, and stories. And while the names on this team change over the years, the ethos and culture that were planted in the 90s and embraced by each new generation remain. A responsibility to the team, a responsibility to the game, a responsibility to the country. These are emboldened athletes, unafraid to be themselves, to use their voice and platform to stand up for what they believe in, to highlight what they see as injustice, and to motivate and inspire young and old with their actions on and off the field. They don't stay in their lane because they want to move forward. You may not always agree with things they say or do. I don't, but I respect that they have the courage, the conviction, and the desire to be disruptors. I like disruptors. This team has cultivated a powerful brand. That brand is rooted in winning, in being the best. The team knows that their platform and the interest that comes with that and their future to a certain extent is fueled by their success on the field. They carry that pressure into the World Cup. Over the next month, this team will grab your attention in any number of ways. At times, they may leave you amazed, confused, inspired, irritated, motivated, disappointed, happy, sad, or even angry. They are proud American disruptors. It's in their DNA. All right, Mossy, there's my State of the Union for this week. Uh, The World Cup is upon us. We are recording this on Monday. We are less than two weeks before the World Cup kicks off. Uh, our U.S. Women's National Team attempt to defend their 
World Cup title from four years ago. Uh, are you excited about this? I am. Now, a few weeks ago, somebody hit me up on Twitter and they said, Alexi is claiming that the competition for the U.S. is not that stiff. Uh, what do you make of it? And I said, well, it's the deepest field ever, the highest number of good teams. But maybe Alexi means at the very top, some of the traditional powers like Germany, Japan, Brazil aren't as good as they've been in the past. I don't know if this person misrepresented what you said, but, but we can address it here. Uh, how would you assess the threat level for the U.S.? Is this a case where if the U.S. plays its A game in every match, just give them the trophy now? No. Or are no. there teams no. that the U.S., even on their best day, certain teams out there could beat them? Yeah, we're going to get into to more of this uh, later on in the pod. But I think when we look at this field, I absolutely agree that this is the deepest field of potential winners. It doesn't mean that the U.S. can't win it, and if they play at their best, isn't going to steamroll through some of the competition. Look, we've had uh, a couple of warm-up games here, ones that we've done on our air, ones that ESPN's done on, on their air, and it, it's much more of a celebration as opposed to gleaning anything from these warm-up games. And different coaches want different things, and you have to balance it. Is it better to actually have some legitimate competition and therefore blood you before you actually get to a tournament, or... Is it more of a training exercise to increase confidence, score some goals, feel good about yourself, which is obviously the way that Jill Ellis and this team has gone. We can glean nothing from these warm-up games, uh, and certainly nothing when it comes to goalkeeping and defending. We'll talk a little bit more, uh, more about that. But I don't think they misrepresented what I was, what I was saying, um, but I do believe that the U.S. is going to a World Cup where the opportunity for more teams to actually win it exists uh, than, in, than in the past. And keep in mind, it's not the best 23 players. It's the best collection of 23 players. And so while I also think that Jill Ellis has the most talent ever assembled for a women's national team, it doesn't necessarily mean that that translates ultimately into them winning a World Cup. Now, I just spent this past week doing promotion in New York, and once again, this machine is starting to generate. And it was really interesting talking to some of the women's national team players. They have this pressure that we talk about, but there's also this feeling that they are being given a send-off in the way that the previous team that obviously we know in Canada won the World Cup didn't have it. And there was a little reticence to accept it because they know they haven't done anything yet. And yet that's what happens when you're champions of the world. And especially the, these, you know, these women collectively and individually, they are incredible and they're killing it when it comes to marketing and sponsorship. And there's a lot of that activation and, and planning that goes into it. But I could sense that there was also a desire to stop it all and kind of get down to business because they know they are going into a World Cup that if they don't live up to those expectations, the way that our country views them uh, could possibly change. It's like Rocky training for the first Club yep. Lang fight in that gym with the 100%. band playing and all that. 100%. Uh, there's been this uh, trend on the men's side. The last three World Cups, the defending champion has gone out in the group stage. Italy 2010, Spain 2014, Germany 2018. The conventional wisdom is that each of those managers was too loyal to the players that had won them the World Cup four years earlier. Now, nobody thinks the U.S. is going out in the group stage, but this could be a factor in terms of them winning or not winning the World Cup. Um, how do you think Joe Ellis is going to manage that? How much uh, emphasis should she put on experience or should she go with who she thinks is the best player now? I think she's actually, if you look at the roster, I think she's had a really good balance. Uh, and you know, we'll talk more about Carly Lloyd later on, but 
you know, for example, I think she could point to say, well, if it was really all about experience, then why wouldn't I be starting Carly Lloyd? And she's uh, certainly not uh, uh, not doing that. I think that there are plenty of people that are licking their chops on the sideline, waiting to get their opportunity. I think Jill Ellis. Uh, at times, certainly has come in for criticism and justifiable and fair uh, criticism. And we all know that in general, when it comes to multiple cycles for coaches, it doesn't always work out. But you know, once again, spending some time with the women of the national team this past week, I think there's also a recognition that what happened in 2015 was all fine and well. But whether it's new players coming into the team or players that were there before, they feel that they have a responsibility and a desire to do something new in this type of setting in France. Uh, and that, you know, that's, that's a good thing. I will be really interested to see how the greater American culture out there gravitates and celebrates this team. We all know that they are, you know, for, for a lot of people, uh, incredible idols uh, and, and superstars and American darlings when it comes especially to media and and marketing out there but we also saw that slow burn that happened in Canada where everybody came into the tent as it went more and more and higher and higher and higher which resulted in historic highs in terms of viewership we know the time zone's a little bit different when it comes to France but now there is there is that expectation and more importantly if I certainly don't want this but if they were to quote unquote, fail, whatever your definition of that is, would, and I said this in the State of the Union, they have built this brand so much so that even when they, when we talk about the lawsuits that they have, they point to time and time again, the amount of success they have on the field. And it's, it's reason to tune in. It is beyond reproach in, ter in terms of the last 20 years. But if there comes a point where they don't live up to it. It doesn't necessarily mean winning the World Cup, but they don't live up to all of the expectation and the hype. Do they individually and collectively in that brand, do they suffer in terms of that perception? I think there'll be a lot of uh, attention uh, in this tournament, but it'd be nice to see the NWSL get a boost from this mm -hmm. um, because it is a little bit concerning uh, it seems like these European women's leagues are growing at a faster rate or more popular in those countries than the NWSL is here. I know the sport is consumed differently here in terms of the relationship between club and country, but still in the long run for the growth of the women's game here, uh, I think the club side has to develop too. So I, I think that's something to keep an eye on and see what kind of boost it gets from this World Cup. It'll also be interesting that these, you know, I talked about the personalities and these characters and these larger than life type of characters that we have on this national team. And and women that aren't afraid about expressing themselves, it'll also be interesting because we all know that the stories that we talk about and that we will be talking about day in and day out because we're the, the caretakers and the broadcasters of this, uh, of this incredible adventure, it, it'll be interesting to see when those other things, and whether it's lawsuits, whether it's the national anthem, whether it's uh, uh, equality and equity and gender uh, equality and all, all of the different things that are are part of this team that have nothing necessarily to do with kicking the ball, but are going to be a story of this team. And we start to have those and we fold all of those things into the incredible athletes that they are. Once again, how the perceptions of these individuals and this team are enhanced uh, or are changed uh, or even are hurt going forward as all these people come into the tent. Because we know what happens when it comes to a, a World Cup is a lot of people that don't normally watch soccer 
aren't even necessarily soccer fans, and especially when we, we, we drape it in red, white, and blue, and it's a wonderful, as far as I'm concerned, it's a wonderful effect that we see happen where people want to come in and they want to celebrate their country. And, and as some of them are introduced to this team and start to know about the history and start to learn about these personalities, all the stories that we can't anticipate right now uh, come out. Because it is our responsibility to talk about those things. It's not just about the kicking the ball. And I know oftentimes people say, just, just stick to sports, stay in your lane, all, all, all of that kind of stuff. But with this team that is so out there and in front from a cultural and social perspective in things that sometimes are based in soccer, but ultimately have nothing to do with actually kicking the ball. It's almost inevitable and unavoidable for us that we are going to be talking about. And the greater media out there is certainly going to be talking about it. And I like that the host nation is good. I like when a country gets swept up mm -hmm. uh, in a World Cup. You know, Germany is the only country to win both the men's and the women's World Cups, but France can become the first to hold those trophies simultaneously. And they're looking to become just the second host nation to win it, the U.S. in 99 being the other. And so I'm really excited for experience France as a country for five weeks and see how passionate they are about the women's game. And, you know, they have their own social issues going on and protests and such. And I'm sure we're going to end up covering that and talking about it. And so it's just going to be fascinating. The host nation is almost like, you know, its own character at these World Cups. And I'm sure it's going to be no different this summer. Well, it's, it's not lost on us uh, that these are two men talking about uh, the women's national team and talking about the women's game. I'm not apologizing for that. This is, this is our show and, and everything like that. But I have the incredible opportunity over the next month and well, month and a half to work uh, with uh, an incredible group of people. The majority and the vast majority with uh, are women that are incredibly interesting and smart and entertaining uh, in terms of a broadcast. And I am without a doubt the, uh, the, the minority and I have, I have no problem with that. I've worked World Cups, uh, World Cups before. But ultimately, this ends up being about soccer. And this ends up being about a country that, uh, that I love and the team that represents the country that I love. And I have to go out there uh, and do my job. And oftentimes, people agree, people disagree, people like it, people don't like it. But ultimately, um, I know that it's my responsibility and incredible privilege to be able uh, to do that. And I, I can't wait to see how this team performs on the field and, once again, how people come into that tent and relate to this team as it goes along and, and we are introduced and many people are introduced to both the, 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 the personalities that exist from a U.S. perspective and as you mentioned also all of these other teams and all of these other stories that we will be uh, bringing to you over the, uh, over the next month and a half. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right, moving on. Hello, people. It's Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I want to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out, Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from Major League Soccer, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. The best part? It's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now back to the show. Mossy makes the case. Okay, it's that time again, uh, that time of the podcast when Mossy makes the case. Yes, Mossy, what are you casing for this week? My case is that when it comes to European football, it's all about the company you keep. Earlier today, Aston Villa defeated Derby County in the championship playoff final, securing promotion to the Premier League. And not surprisingly, the final whistle set off jubilant celebrations. This has been called the most expensive match in football because of the difference in money that a club stands to make by being in the Premier League as opposed to the championship. 
Yet Villa are never going to compete financially with the Manchester United's and Manchester City's, and barring a Leicester-like miracle, they're never going to win a Premier League title. So what's all the fuss about? As I watched Villa celebrate, I thought about something that our colleague Ben Grossman, a Crystal Palace fan, once said to me. Ben said he would sign for Palace finishing 17th in the Premier League every year until the day he dies. Just being in the Premier League is satisfaction enough for him. Uh, This view seems to be shared by many others because if you watch a Premier League or Bundesliga match involving bottom half of the table teams, the stadium is packed, there's a tremendous atmosphere, and I thought about how that contrasts with American sports. Here there's an obsession with parity and every team having a chance to win because there's a concern that if a fan feels like his team doesn't have a chance, he'll check out. The irony is that the rules are such in MLS that a promoted team could compete right away, and yet MLS doesn't have promotion relegation while we make such a big deal about it in Europe where it's tantamount to reshuffling the chairs in the back of the room. I don't know if MLS will ever adopt promotion relegation, but I can tell you it's not going anywhere in Europe because there, just being in the big show is worth its weight in gold. Interesting, interesting. Well, I, I, I kept thinking once again, because this is what you've done to me, Mossy, I kept thinking about Game of Thrones and this whole uh, hierarchy and class and feudalism type of thing where you, you have your lot in life and that's what you should accept and, and enjoy and never think about possibly attaining uh, another level. And this, um, the, the, this elitism, and, and, and maybe it's, American exceptionalism that I, I do want everybody to be in a situation and believe that they can be the best and they can compete with the best. And I don't want anybody to just accept. And I think we find that in American sports in the way, as you said, the the parody is manufactured. And the it's not that there aren't haves and have-nots, but the drastic separation that we talk about uh, all the time. So a a Ben Grossman is the, you know, the, I guess in, in Game of Thrones would be the, the blacksmith or whatever. <laughs> Just resigned to the fact that this is my lot in life, this is who I'm going to be, and I will rejoice. Now, certainly the, the rewards for finishing, just staying in that, in that, in that role when it comes to uh, the EPL and the money that they give are wonderful, but I don't. I don't want that. Why why is that enjoyable to like I don't want people to be just be satisfied. And that's it. This is a, as good as it gets. This is as good as it gets, so I'm just going to be okay. I don't know if you saw incredible scenes uh, today. Union Berlin yes. secured promotion to the Bundesliga, and the fans rushed the field. And I was thinking the only equivalent we have to that in American sports is in college basketball, these small conference tournaments with automatic bids. Uh, to the NCAA tournament and the celebrations when those teams win, knowing that they're just signing up to be 15, 16 season, get pummeled in the first round, but just being in the big dance is an achievement. And so that's kind of the same sensation. But I do often wonder about fans of these clubs that have never won anything in 100 years, are never going to win anything for the next 100 years, and yet they're still so passionate, so devoted, and it's admirable in a way, but in another way it's like, yeah. wait a minute, I mean, shouldn't you be more upset at the way things are and, and sort of I get the, rattling yeah. against the system? You, you and- should be. And yet, <laughs> and yet I do. There's also a part of me that looks at it and sees the romance of we know we're never going to be be there and it's it's okay because we take great pride and joy on on, in being who we are and if we have that moment to celebrate where we at least get invited to the dance 
Okay? It doesn't necessarily mean that we expect uh, or think we can be crowned the, the king of the ball or whatever to, you know, to continue on with, the, with the, the dance part of it. But I want everybody to think that they can be crowned king. I want everybody to think that, that they as human beings, or in this case as teams, have, have the right. And I know, you know the separation comes with, with the incredible money that you get, but also with, once you get there, also the recognition that the money is all fine and well, but it still doesn't mean that we are going to com compete. It's interesting because as top European leagues go, we hold up the Premier League as being the most competitive, but there has been this incredible separation between the big six and the other 14. And some people are starting to become alienated by that and are gravitating to the championship, which has almost an MLS level parity. The championship is mm -hmm. kind of this wild free-for-all. And so it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm coming across a lot of people that are telling me, wow, I've watched more of the championship this season than ever before. It was a very compelling season with Bielsa and everything that he brought. But so, I mean, that's kind of an interesting subplot here. But it's also, at least they can rest on the, the, the fact that the EPL has six or right. seven, <laughs> as opposed to one or two, which is basically what happens in most of the other leagues. And, you know, an interesting thing is I mentioned in this pod that uh, I thought maybe Pep and Zidane's success the last decade was going to spur more clubs to hire former great players that didn't necessarily have the greatest of resumes. And United have gone that route with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk now about Frank Lampard at Chelsea because uh, Maurizio Sarri is being courted by Juventus and that would open up the Chelsea job. It'd be interesting to see if they go that route. Even John Terry who's an assistant at Aston Villa. Uh, so they were going head-to-head -to -head, uh, today, which was interesting. But... Uh, I don't know. Uh, Alex are... Dowd, thumbs up or thumbs down on Frank Lampard as the next Chelsea coach? Uh, Alex equivocating as always. They're, not, <laughs> not, they're, trying, they're trying to capture some of that old glory. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's encapsulated uh, and embodied literally in these players that they associate with a history of success. And they're trying to tap into it. We all know that, doesn't, that it, it doesn't always happen. So when one of their own actually shows some proficiency and has some success at being a coach, automatically everybody says, well, that should be the answer. This is who's going to link, resurrect us and bring us back to the glorious past because he or she understands what it means to win in this situation. He or she has a, a much better understanding of, of who we are ultimately. But as we've just established, it doesn't matter who he or she actually is. Uh, if they don't have the money to compete when they get there, they're still not going anywhere, regardless of how good they are. Oh, my goodness. Anything else, Mossy? What do you That's got? That's it. That's it? All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, it's time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, and we pull out some questions. We're doing a special one. As, as we mentioned, we are right around the corner from the Women's World Cup, so we pulled out a bunch of questions that pertain to the World Cup, whether it's U.S. Women's National Team or, or anything in general uh, going forward. So we have a, uh, a rapid fire when it comes to these questions regarding the World Cup. Mossy, what do the people want to know this week? First up, Jonathan Densa. Alexi, to fill in the blanks. The U.S. Women's National Team will win the World Cup because dot, 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 and the U.S. Women's National Team will not win the World Cup because dot, dot, dot. My first answer is the same answer for both of those, and that would be goalkeeping. So the U.S. wins it because of goalkeeping. Nair in goal, who we all know is no hope solo, and I th I'm thinking of bringing a, a cup 
as I said, to the Women's World Cup and placing it on the studio. And then anytime anybody says Hope Solo, you have to put a coin in it. We'll see how much we can accumulate over the, uh, over the tournament because she's going to be compared to Hope Solo and she, she understands that that's part of the deal. She is going to at some point, and it's, we talked earlier about the meaningful games. We're not going to see this U.S. Women's National Team play a meaningful game until the third game of the group stage against uh, Sweden. At some point, Alyssa Nair is going to have to make that big save, that save that keeps the U.S. team in a game. If it's a knockout game that keeps them uh, in a knockout game and lets them go on and win. If it's a knockout game and they go into penalties, that makes the save. In the same way, that since she is no hope solo, and we, under, we understand that, she doesn't have to be the greatest goalkeeper that ever lived, but she does have to make a big save. And if she doesn't, that could be a problem because I don't think that this defense, and I say defense, it's not just the back four, it's the team defensively, is set up to go on the clean sheet run that the U.S. did four years ago. So my answer would be, it will come down to goalkeeping. It won't come down to goalkeeping in the beginning, but at some point, whoever's in goal, and by all accounts it looks like it's going to be a listener, uh, she is going to have to make that big save. And if she makes it, then I think that that's one of the reasons why, and a big reason why they win the World Cup. And if she doesn't make, make it and lets in a bad goal and isn't there to be... because. Let's be honest, you're a coach of the women's national team, the U.S. women's national team. You're called upon very rarely. And that's even sometimes more difficult than a goalkeeper that's getting peppered throughout. Every goalkeeper will tell you that. So she's going to have to make that big save. And if she does, great. And if she doesn't, then I think it's a problem uh, for the U.S. women winning the World Cup. At Lex Kuhn, read piece today on Carly Lloyd's apparent ambivalence to coming off the bench. Can it possibly backfire? I don't think it can possibly backfire if you truly believe, as Jill Ellis believes, that this U.S. women's national team is better with her in a substitute position. Now, I I saw Carly Lloyd last week. She, and rightfully so, is not happy about the situation, but I don't think she's not happy in a detrimental way to the team. I've said this, the day that Carly Lloyd is accepting or okay with not starting for the U.S. Women's National Team is the day that Carly Lloyd should not be on the U.S. Women's National Team. Such is the fire that she has and the importance that she has. I think she has a role to play this summer. She will be seething uh, and ready to make that impact if and when she is called upon. I think she will be called upon, and that's a wonderful substitution to have coming uh, coming off the bench. But I also don't, I don't like, once again, this goes back to my State of the Union. This, these are a group of women who aren't afraid of expressing themselves and being honest. And so many players would have said, well, I just want to help the team and I'm going to do whatever is right for the team and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's not as if she, she, she came out and, and slammed Jill Ellis or the decision but she was honest and says, no, I don't like starting. And she, sh- she shouldn't like starting. To be quite honest, nobody should like not starting. She wants to start. 
this is a woman who won a World Cup. This is a woman who scored incredible goals uh, four years ago. This is a woman who believes that physically she's just as good, if not better, than she has been, and that she can make an impact. So, of course, you want to be on the field. We'll see if ultimately she gets uh, the opportunity because we also know that changes had to happen in that last World Cup when it came to red cards and when it came to injuries that facilitated the changes that ultimately, I think, enabled the U.S. women in 2015 to win the World Cup. But that was the soccer gods. That wasn't anything tactical. That was an adjustment that the soccer gods made, and ultimately it worked out well. But I don't think it can backfire. But if they, once again, if they flame out and are a failure, the fact that Carly Lloyd is on the bench, that's going to be brought up. And if after the fact... Carly Lloyd brings it up, it would not surprise me in the least, all right? She's a good Jersey girl. She's a Rutgers girl. I love her. I would want her on every single team that I, that, that I was on, and, but that doesn't mean that she can't be incredibly um, passionate and emotional and scream and yell and do all of those things that make great players great, and ultimately, Carly Lloyd is a great player, whether she's on the bench or whether she's a starter. There are some international coaches that subscribe to the theory that stars don't make for great role players. Once a former star is not good enough to start anymore, you're better off not having them there at all because it's a distraction having somebody like that on the bench and the players that are starting looking over their shoulders. Uh, but it wasn't an issue with Abby Wambach in 2015. Mm -hmm. I don't think it'll be an issue here with Carly Lloyd. It's also not, it's not an issue as long as you keep winning. Right. <laughs> when, you, when you lose... Uh, then you know the, the the true feelings ultimately come out. I, I do subscribe to that theory. I think it's very difficult for someone who has starred in a in a successful capacity and in a, in a successful role to change. And because you're you're accepting of something, and none of us were ever any good without a good ego and a healthy ego and and a beautiful ego. And it's once you're able to harness it, it can fuel you. It can also take you down different paths. What else? Neil Perry, if the U.S. women's national team wins its first two group games, does it make sense to sit the starting 11 for rest? Okay, so... Uh, keep in mind, like you said, the last group game is against Sweden. Right. The U.S. have a score to settle there because of the Olympics. Also, Sweden was the only team that avoided defeat against the U.S. at the last World Cup. So that's a tough game to kind of take off. I think they're going to want to win that game. And so, so people understand the context also. It, it, and we've, we've said this before, it bears repeating because we will repeat it a lot. If the U.S. wins their group and France wins their group and they go through in the round of 16, they will meet in Paris in the quarterfinals of the World Cup. That's from a television perspective too early for us. We would like something to happen and the soccer gods, speaking the soccer gods, to smile upon us, either the Fran France's group or the U.S.'s group, something to happen to shoot one off the opposite way. But, you know, if everything goes as planned on paper, that's what is going to, uh, to happen. That third game against Sweden, potentially from a U.S. perspective, could pose problems that do send the U.S. off where they finish second uh, and they go in, a different, uh, go in a different direction. Playing for it, though, that's a whole, that's a whole other story. I think it's, it's so hard. It's like playing not to, not to lose or not to let in goals or not to get a, a yellow card. It's, it's, it's sometimes very it, – it's, it's like playing to fix a game. It's, it, it's very hard to do that when you are conditioned and accustomed to playing a certain way to, to, to pull back. I actually think from, from a Sweden standpoint, it may even – be easier for them 
to concede and go and go and go that side and say, hey, we'll live to fight another day as opposed to having to go through France. And that would go against the U.S.'s ethos you mentioned of winning yep. and swagger if they actively tried to avoid a certain opponent until the later rounds. You know, I think they need to adopt the attitude. If we face France in the quarterfinals, so be it and go and beat them. I will tell you this, uh, another Carly Lloyd story. I, I was with her, as I said, last week, and she was wonderful. And all, all of the women are wonderful. We did an appearance together. And she asked me, what, what do you think is going to happen with us? And, you know, when I get asked a question, I, I, so I told her point blank, I think you're going to go win your group, and I think you're going to lose to France in the quarterfinals. She, because she's Carly Lloyd, as all of the players on the team, uh, she was very professional. Uh, she did not agree, shall we say. I won't tell you what she said. Maybe I'll tell you at the end of the tournament what she said. There's a little tease, uh, tease for you. But you know, it's, this, is, this, this is the pathway that has it lined up. But... I will say, as much as I would, as I have picked France to win that game, this is a U.S. team that understands that that has the the potential to be on the horizon, and I think they're licking their chops, and I think they, and I'm saying this collectively as a team. If I were to say that to the team, would use it as not that I I'm motivating them or anything like that, but they would say, I know a lot of people believe that but they know more about the France team and the mentality of this France team than those of us uh, on the outside. And I don't think that they are worried at all about that potential matchup. And so I think that plays into whether that third game, how they approach that game. I don't think they care. They would never care in normal circumstances. And I don't think they care in this instance because they have no problem going and playing France in the quarterfinals. This was the event where you gave them a foosball table? As there a were a couple president? of different events, a couple of different events. We did say, some marketing also stuff. Also, French consulate, right? Yeah, we did a, 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 a wonderful event at the French consulate, and we uh, did an event because they had their media day, and we as Fox presented them all with their own little figurines from these incredible foosball tables that we had that we made up. Uh, they did an incredible job. There's 3D mapping of each and every player so that their their likeness and then uh, it's made in 3D and then uh, they paint them all. It was just a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of energy to, to come up with these really cool foosball tables. I think we have 12 or 13 of them. We will have one on our set our, uh, uh, of our studio show happening here in Los Angeles each and every night that's giving a synopsis of what happened in the day, whether it's with the Women's World Cup uh, and Gold Cup. Uh, so you'll see those and there's a lot of people including a lot of the players we gave them the figurines their own individual figurines but a lot of them came up and said hey can we get the actual table uh, to which I said well go in the World Cup and then we'll talk <laughs> uh, mine and Alex's invitations apparently got lost in the mail to all these events we... you, you wouldn't have liked, liked it it was you know it's just lots, a lot of open bars and hors d'oeuvres and stuff like that pretty people so <laughs> next up uh at Kuhl Sakura. Okay. Your guess is as good as mine. Uh, seems like four or five countries have an equal chance at the title. Who will get upset and who's a Cinderella? Who's a Cinderella? Well, you know, as, as we've been talking about, there are, there are a bunch of teams that could potentially win it. You're talking about U.S., you're talking about France, uh, you're talking about right now the Australias. Um, you are talking about... Uh, Germany was always going to be be around. Uh, you're talking about England. A lot of people very, very high on England as as I am. I think that they're they're feeling it. There are a lot of teams also that don't fear the U.S. in the way they have in the past, and that's 
That's a good thing for, for the tournament and for the competition. That's a bad thing for the U.S. because they have made uh, they have been able to use that to their advantage going forward. A, a team like the Netherlands, who previous World Cup we thought were ready, and they weren't quite ready for prime time. Since then, they've won uh, the European Championship, and this is a team that could potentially be that, that dark horse coming through and coming good. It's not as if they're coming out of nowhere, but this is a team that, uh, that I think will be really, really interesting. Also, Spain, which I don't think is yet ready for prime time, in terms of scoring goals, in the way that they play, in the talent that they have, in their understanding of who they want to be, the possession that they have, I, I think they're there. I think they're just missing that final piece of having all of that possession and all of that creativity be able to put the ball in the back of the net. So some of these teams, I think, come the end of the tournament, we will be saying this was, this was a great coming out party for this team. And something uh, that we could see going forward in four years really coming to fruition. It's funny, I had Netherlands and Spain too. Netherlands have two of the best players, and Lika Martens and Fifian Miedema, so I'm excited to watch them for sure. As far as a disappointment, I don't know if this even qualifies, but I think Brazil are going out in the group stage. This is a program that's in a free fall. We, I'm going to use the weave. Mm -hmm. uh, we had our window in the mid-2000s where we were so much more skilled than everybody else. It could just about make up sure. for the lack of organization. Got to two straight Olympic finals, a World Cup final. Didn't cash in. Last chance really was at Olympics in 2016 at home. Didn't cash in there. And since then, it's just been a disaster. And I think they're ripe for an early exit here. I think Marta's World Cup career ends uh, unceremoniously with an early exit. And, and God forbid that Marta's not not ready to go uh, and anything happens to her because they still and look it's one of the greatest players ever to play the game and arguably the greatest uh, w women's player ever to play the game so i would it be but it wouldn't be that disappointing in that it wouldn't be that surprising no absolutely not okay. they're sort of a pseudo contender they have marta they're still ranked in the top right. 10 so it's still a, a team you throw out there without really thinking about it much but they're not really a threat to do anything uh final question at del schaefer uh, how good is Mal Pugh? Will she start? How good is Mal Pugh and will she start? Uh, she's good. She won't start. She won't start because I think that Jill Ellis uh, has settled on her starting 11 with the possible exception and question of Sam Mewis uh, starting over Lindsey Horan. But I still think that ultimately it's going to be Horan, Lavelle, and Julie Ertz in that midfield position. The, the, the trident up top, uh, unless an injury happens, is going to be Rapino, Morgan, and Heath. Uh, Crystal Dunn on the left back position, O'Hara on the right back position, Dal Kemper and uh, Salbrin in the uh, center back positions, and as I mentioned, Alyssa Nair in goal. I think that that is the starting 11, unless something crazy changes. As I said, the only possible question would be is whether it's Mewis or Hor uh, Lindsay Horan, but I still think that they're going to go with uh, Lindsay Horan. And that's a, that's a really good starting 11. And we've seen that to have, like I said, whether it's a Mal Pugh or a Kristen Press, uh, these types of players on the bench to come off, uh, they, they, are, they are stacked, this team, in terms of talent, and especially talent coming off the bench. And like I said, uh, Carly Lloyd. So I... I don't worry about this team, especially going forward. And there might come a point where this team just says, you know what, we are just going to score more goals than you. And we might let up some goals, but the reality is that we are so good and so potent going forward that we will just 
outscore as many as we possibly can. And if we let a few in on the other side, uh, we'll deal with it because we're going to outscore you. And they do have the talent to be able to do that. But we all know defense wins championships. Well, maybe they'll turn that on its head. Maybe Jill Ellis will turn that on its head this summer. And from an entertainment perspective, if something's going to happen, uh, that would be wonderful because that more goals are good. In my expert opinion, Mossy, goals are good. What else? That is it. All right. Uh, thank you for all of those questions. And, and send them, you know, as we go through the summer, keep sending us questions, whether it's about the U.S. Women's National Team, anything about the U.S. Women's, uh, or about the uh, Women's World Cup going on in France, Gold Cup going on, or anything else. Uh, this was just because we are where we are today and we're getting so close to this Women's World Cup and we're so excited about it, we wanted to uh, make one, uh, an Ask Alexi segment that had all questions about the Women's World Cup. And look, we, we barely even scratched the surface when it comes to whether the, the U.S. national team or the World Cup in general. Uh, there's so many more questions that hopefully uh, we will have answer for as, uh, answers for as we go forward uh, in our broadcast of the World Cup, which, as I said, begins next week. Amazing. Amazing. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, it's time for our back three, some of the biggest stories and games or moments uh, of the past week. Mossy, what is in our back three this week? Uh, first up, the Under-20 World Cup. You called it today alongside mm-hmm. Keith Costigan. The U.S. Uh, bounces back from an opening loss to Ukraine. They beat Nigeria 2-0, both goals by Hanover Sebastian Soto. What were your overall impressions of the match? I thought this was what they had hoped for in the first game in that after the first game, there were a lot of folks that said it was a good performance, but it wasn't a good result. They lost to Ukraine 2-1. to one. This was both a good performance and a, a great result. Uh, the way that they played and then obviously the, the scoreline is exactly what a Tab Ramos as a head coach would want. Uh, you mentioned Soto, who came in and actually started a much more traditional type of uh, position and player up top, which paid dividends, which meant that Tim Weah, uh, who was really effective on the, on the left-hand side, and De La Fuente uh, on the uh, right-hand side. I just think from, from start to finish, this was the type of game that Tab Ramos will want. And if you get a chance to see the second goal, which happened seconds into the beginning of the second half, check it out, because... It is everything from a coaching perspective that you want to happen, that un- unfortunately rarely does. You train on an ideal, how, how to play out of the back and things that you want to do, outside attacking players pinching in, outside backs going forward. Go watch it. It was, it was a, a pattern to goal. It mirrored exactly what you draw up on the board. It mirrored exactly what you train uh, and so it must be incredibly gratifying to someone like Tab Ramos and to the and team and players to have that payoff in a competitive environment. So I thought this was great. And they're right back in it. They have a t- potential to win the group. This is an a, a interesting and exciting and entertaining team. A lot of people have their hopes up because that's what we do when we see young talent. We extrapolate it out. This is what they are now. Think of what they could be. It doesn't always work like that, I understand. But even... A grump like myself, I am excited, and I was excited to see this uh, to see this team play and see how far they go in the future. Now, how many of these players ultimately are able to matriculate up and and help the national team, I, the full national team, Greg Berhalter's national team right now? I don't know, but e- but in the moment, we can be excited for the way that they are playing, the result that they are getting, and if it's two or three and 
there, then there's plenty of talent uh, over there with uh, Paxton Pamacall and, and these types of players. And some of them will graduate. But I will just throw this final thing out. There are players right now that are 17, 18, 19, that, that from an age perspective could be involved that aren't yet there. They're slow you know, in, in terms of their development. They might come around later on. Uh, and they, they just needed a different time. The right time and circumstances wasn't, wasn't there for them. That, that's okay. They'll, they'll be there when we need them, to, uh, need them to be there. But it's fun to see an American men's national team playing the way that they're playing, and at least in this instance, getting the results that we want. Yeah, I was going to say, Brazil have won this tournament five times, but the under-20 program has gone in the toilet. Uh, Brazil haven't qualified for the last under-20, uh, last two under-20 World Cups. And they're still pumping out the players. It's just a matter of not getting them released, not sure. being able to send them to qualifying. And so people in Brazil are, are grappling with how upset should we be about this. Just in general, how much emphasis do you put in these youth tournaments? When you see a player not getting released by his club or being fast-tracked to the senior team, you think he's really missing out on something that could be an important part of his development, experiencing an under-20 World Cup? Yeah, I was never involved with anything below under-23. So that would have been the Olympic team. I played with players that were involved at different times that never, it never came to fruition with them. Uh, there are some that are able to start and are identified early and live up to that. They are few and far between. It doesn't mean that you don't do it because even watching the game today, I was talking to Keith Costigan. The reality is if you get one or two or maybe three out of this group that can make a positive and lasting impact on your national team, that's, that's a pretty good return. Otherwise, you're hoping for a golden generation. And that's not necessarily something that you develop. That's something that, that oftentimes just, just, uh, just happens. So I don't know how many of these players are going to be the ones that do it, or if any of them are going to be the ones that do it. But that's not a reason not to do uh, youth development. It's something we love to point to, to show yes we're heading in the right direction. Yes we know what we're yes we know what we're doing, but as you mentioned, Brazil doesn't even go to the under twenty World Cup, and I don't think anybody would say that they are heading in the wrong direction. Is it a, is it a red flag that they start screaming and yelling? Nah, maybe, but it's so weird. And and as you know, Masi, so many things can change in the lives of these players. Some of them. I haven't even finished growing. Puberty is a great equalizer, all right? So from a physical perspective, they can lose what they had that got them there in the first place. Then off-field situation, new coach, different team. Uh, they get sold for millions of dollars. They get in trouble off of the field. They, get in, they start doing things they shouldn't be doing uh, off the field. They start playing in a system that's completely different than anything they've grown up. So many different variables that can send you off on a different course and maybe derail you from what you once were. But it's fun. It's what we like to do. This is who you are. And we extrapolate it out and say, this is who you are now, which means you're so good at that point. Think of what you will be two years from now. And if that two years from now is with the national team playing in a World Cup, oh, we're winning a World Cup. <laughs> but that's what we do as fans. I get it. That's, that's all right. And I, and I know I sound like a grouch when I, uh, when I say that. Um, but... Uh, as I told Keith today, 
slow your roll. All right. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how it all turns out. All right. They could win the World Cup, but it doesn't the, the under 20 World Cup and still only one or two of them could ultimately amount to anything. What else? Natural segue here. The U.S.'s most talented young player, Christian Pulisic, is on the move this summer, mm -hmm. uh, going from Dortmund to Chelsea. His former club making good use of that money. Uh, Dortmund last week announced the signings of Nico Schultz, left back from Hoffenheim, uh, Thorgan Hazard from Gladbach, and Julian Brandt from Leverkusen. The combined transfer figures for all three of those players was only like 10 million euros more than they got from Pulisic. So incredible bit of business by Dortmund, huh? Yes, and so th this is quintessential Dortmund. They spent, uh, what do you say, uh, zero on Christian Pulisic to bring him there? Null? I think, it's, I think that's zero. To bring him there. They spent, whatever, chump change when it comes to actually developing him, okay? If it ends up being <laughs> a million, whatever it ends up being, it's nothing. And then they sold him for, what do we, what, what's the number? We go all over the place. Let's say- Neighborhood of 65 million. All right, million so 65 million dollars, which then they parlayed and turned it around and bought three, not just three players, three quality players in and of themselves that they can also then flip going forward. Because if, you know, if Torgan Hazard, for example, continues to progress, uh, you know, these, these are types of players that can then, they, they can, I mean, this is, this is exactly what they do. So much so that they can also afford to say, nope, Jaden Sancho is not for sale. This is not something that we are doing, uh, doing right now. So this is, if you want a template, it, there, are, there are business folks out there that are standing up a tear streaming down their face saying, this is a work of art. This is magical. You are, you are masters. You are, uh, from a financial perspective and a business perspective, this is exactly what you want to do. This is a coup de grace. So it's I, the, uh, I think it's all positive. Prop Joe, buy for one, sell for two yep. uh, approach to the transfer market. You know, I remember when Dortmund won those back-to-back -back Bundesliga titles with Klopp, 2010-11, 2011-12. And then during the 2012-13 season, as they were embarking on their run to the Champions League final, remember in January of that season, Bayern announced Pep was going to be their next coach. I remember thinking, boy, this is set up to be just an epic rivalry the next few years that's going to rival Barcelona around Madrid. And then late that season, right before the two teams played in the Champions League final, Bayern announced the signing of Mario Götze. And it was such a buzzkill because you felt like, well, how can this be a real rivalry if one team can poach players off the other? And sure enough, following the next season, Lewandowski went too. And it set off a four or five year period where it was kind of forced. I mean, we did our best to hype it up at Fox whenever they played their classic or a clash of heavyweights, but it really wasn't. Um, last season, going the way it did down to the wire, Dortmund coming out publicly and saying we're not going to sell players to Bayern anymore, and the way they started this summer signing all these players, I'm getting kind of a 2012-13 sensation again. This is the best I've felt about this rivalry in a while. Now, Bayern are going to have a big summer, too. They've already sure. signed Lucas Hernandez, Benjamin Pavard. They've been linked to other players like Lee Rosane. Um, but the fact that Dortmund are trying to answer, and there's kind of a fun arms race kind of feel right now, it's exciting. Dortmund are at least trying to match him. And I, this flurry of Dortmund moves got me really excited for the next Bundesliga season. Oh, and, and not for nothing, but they sold a player for that $65 million that wasn't even starting for them in Christian Pulisic. So, I mean, they, they, are, they are incredibly smart. I'm, I'm not quite yet at your place yet in terms that this is legit. I think Bayern Munich got their scare this year, and we know ultimately they prevailed at the end. It, it, is it good? Yes, it's good. But I'm not convinced yet that Dortmund actually believe that they are in a race uh, and that they are willing to compete. 
with uh, Bayern Munich. Bayern, by the way, hammered Leipzig 3-0 in the German yes, Cup did. final. Any notion of them getting rid of Nico Kovac has now fallen by the wayside. And PSG uh, decided to keep Thomas Tuchel. They signed him to a new deal. Uh, so I'm really wondering where Jose Mourinho is going to end up because he keeps insisting that he's only going to come back for a quote-unquote top-level job. But I don't know what's out there. Um, the Serie A ended yesterday, and there were Mourinho implications there because uh, Inter Milan, AC Milan, and Roma were all battling for fourth place. Inter got it, but Inter are going to hire Antonio Conti as their next coach. By the time you hear this podcast, it might already be announced. And so... Uh, I, I don't know where he's going to go, frankly. He's swatting away the Celtics and Benficas because it's beneath him. He told Roma a few weeks ago he would only go there if they finished in the top four. They didn't. And so I have a feeling, you know, in, in this game of musical chairs here, when the, song, when the music stops, the guy that's going to be left out, he might have to set out a whole other season because, he, you know, he wouldn't deign to take a step down and go to like a Benfica, and he's mm. holding out for a top job, and I don't think it's there right now. Three words. Rocky Mountain High. Colorado <laughs> Rapids. <laughs> Here we go. Make it happen. <laughs> All right, what else? All right, we'll end on this. Uh, we have two European finals coming up. Uh, Wednesday, it's Chelsea against Arsenal in the Europa League decider. And then Saturday... You don't say, really. Uh, in Madrid, uh, Liverpool against Tottenham. We will have a Premier League Champions League winner for the first time since Chelsea fluked their way to the title back in 2012. Let me, uh, let me go Europa League first uh, and just get this out of the way. Okay. This final will take place in Baku. Who's playing? Chelsea Arsenal. Uh, the Who's final will take place in Baku, which is the capital of Azerbaijan. Very controversial. First, for logistical reasons. It's a tough place to get in and out of. It's very expensive. So a lot of fans are returning their tickets. They're very unhappy the final is there. And then you throw this Mkhitaryan incident to boot. Uh, he is Armenian. Armenia and Azerbaijan have all sorts of tension. And so Waif and the Azerbaijani government did everything they could to convince him that it would be safe for him to go there. But he was not sufficiently convinced. After consulting with his family, he decided, I, I don't feel safe going there. I'm not going to take part in this match. And so it's sort of, there's almost like a Qatar 2022-ish feel to yeah. the final. People question, why would Wafer put the final in a place like that? And Wafer saying, well, look, we can't just put it in the same places. We're trying to grow the game. And w what do you make of all that? It's hard because Wafer uh, also can't just, it, it can't be dictated by one player. Also one player that you don't even know who's ultimately going to be in the final. And yes, part of their mandate is to spread the wealth. Uh, and spread the gospel of it and take it to different places. Otherwise, it's just going to be the same places over and over and over again. But the fact that a player, because of history and politics and warring factions and all that kind of stuff, can't doesn't feel safe enough to play a final in, in, a, in a certain place. That's not it's not a good look. It's not a, it's not a good uh, a good look at all. So, but. You know, I mean, could you find other players that this random place they wouldn't feel comfortable go comfortable going for, uh, going to? And they they assured him that, that he would be safe. But if you're not going to play in a Europa League final because you fear for your safety, I mean, that's not a, a decision you you take lightly. You because I, I don't doubt that they would have protected him and they would have gone out of their way. They certainly don't want anything possibly happening to somebody on their, uh, on their watch. But if all of that still happened and he still said, I just don't feel, uh, feel comfortable, that sucks for him. Yeah. Sucks for the team. And it's, and it's not a good look. But I don't know how you change it because maybe somebody else has a problem with going to France or going, going, going someplace else. So I don't, I don't know. Is it going to hurt the team ultimately, you think? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, he's been a key player sure. in this Europa League run. Yeah, no, the, the terrible situation. Like you said, terrible look for UEFA. Uh, no such issues with the Champions League final, which is in Madrid. Uh, Liverpool. Nobody has a problem going to Madrid. Tottenham. Okay. No. Uh, in fact, your uh, colleague Keith Costigan is on his way there. He's very excited. He is. I got him all wound up t- today because, and this, this this goes to his Liverpool team. He's all very, very excited. And, you know, I explained to him that it should be no problem. It should be... <laughs> an easy task given that they are so much better than the opposition and Spurs from from front to back they're just a better team he didn't want to talk about it as a matter of fact he he ran out of uh, the room but not before I added insult to injury when I said when is the first time that Liverpool is going to win the league title and he got he got all crazy about that because then he went into the whole rebranding of the EPL we've won plenty of league titles it was great it was so wonderful to see him get all riled up but I I truly do believe that Liverpool is a better team and Liverpool should win but he doesn't want to hear it because he doesn't want to jinx that there's been this awkward layoff between when these two teams last played in the Premier League Mm -hmm. but it's been uh, good news for Tottenham because they've been able to get healthy it sounds like Harry Kane and Harry Winks will both be available there's a question as to whether they will start I suspect Winks will start in the midfield alongside Sissoko but Kane will not I think He's going to come off the bench. I don't. Um, I think Pochettino really fears that Diego Costa 2014 situation where he limped off after 10 minutes in that Real Madrid Atletico final. Do you think it's that? Do you think it's that? Yeah, and I think he feels pretty good about, you know, Son starting up front, Lucas yeah. Mora with his heroics against Ajax in the second leg. So I think it'll be a front four of Ali, Eriksson, Son, and Lucas, and he'll save Kane as, a, as an incredible weapon right. to, to bring but, on. And you don't, you don't want to mess with it if it's worked Dance with the ones that bring you all that all that kind of stuff. Even though it's is one of the great players in the world right. in Kane, so I th- I think it's much more of him not wanting to mess with the formula as it is about a fear of a Diego Costa type of situation. I mean, and it sounds like Firmino will be fit for Liverpool. Okay. So it'll be Firmino, uh, Salah, and Mane uh, in the midfield. It'll be. Some combination of Fabinho, Henderson, Wijnaldum, and Milner. He'll pick three of those four. I suspect Fabinho, Wijnaldum, Henderson, but you never know. Milner could work his way in there. And I think the, the, the time in between games for both of these teams, since they're all English teams, they're all, you know, it, it, it doesn't help or hurt anybody except from an injury standpoint and getting players back. But I think had it been they were playing against a Spanish team or uh, a German team, I think it would have been detrimental to have this much time. I think that there is a, a battle-tested type of consistency that comes with playing week in and week out. And while you might say it'd be nice to have a break, I think it can do more harm than, uh, than help. But in this case, since both teams are, are experiencing the same thing, I don't think it's, it's negligible. Uh, Liverpool won both games in the Premier League by 2-1 score lines. Yes. Uh, that was my, I, I texted Keith yesterday, that was my prediction for this one as well. 2-1 Liverpool, what are you going with? You, t- you think it's that close again? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, really? No, I think I it's think, an incredibly tough game. I think game. Liverpool 3 nothing. Wow. Yeah. Uh, let I me didn't leave, tell Keith that, though. Let me leave this parting <laughs> shot for Arsenal fans. Okay. Uh, have you ever seen a club with an opportunity to completely reverse the narrative of a rivalry in one fell swoop? Tottenham have been the little brother for 100 years there, and if they win a Champions League title before Arsenal does, uh, it <sighs> all flips, and they'll be able to hold that over Arsenal fans forever. I, I, I think Tottenham is looking around going, how did we get here? <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think Tottenham is just kind of happy to be there. And you can talk about a team like that where they have they have nothing to lose, and they don't because nobody expected them to be here, including them including themselves uh, uh, right now. Which which is why I, I believe that ultimately Liverpool is is a better team and will prove it over the ninety. And 
90 minutes. And I know Allie Wagner is a huge, huge Spurs fan. Uh, she's not listening, but if she were listening, she would be calling me names more so than she does in normal. What else? That's it. Is that it? Yeah. We're all done? We're all done. We've come to the end of yet another podcast? Our final one stateside. Our final one stateside. It's, it's good that you brought that up. So we are, as we said, recording this uh, on a Monday. Uh, when do you leave for France? I leave on Sunday. When do you leave? I leave on Friday. I arrive Saturday just hours before the Champions League final. I basically have time to throw the bags out at the hotel and try to find a bar to watch it. Well, uh, for our listeners who over the years have, have understood that you've been taking Italian lessons, I come to find out you've also been taking French lessons. Correct. That's true? Yes. How are you? Do you feel you, are, you can get around? I speak it well and I read it well. I do still have trouble understanding French people when they speak, when they talk very fast. So that, that's kind of the last step I have to conquer Good. Well, as we were saying before uh, we came on air, the French are, are well known for their patience and their understanding when it comes to people that don't speak the language. So I'm sure that they will be incredibly helpful to you uh, as you, you know, try to figure out your way when it comes to French. I do not speak any French at all. So the next six weeks are going to be very interesting. They're going to be interesting for everybody. Uh, we will still be bringing you content when it comes to the State of the Union pod. Uh, we will be uh, giving you big content, little content, daily content, weekly content, all sorts of different uh, content uh, on all different uh, platforms. So don't worry, you will get your fix. Mossy and I will be much closer uh, logistically than we were in Russia. So we will be able to uh, hopefully be able to record these with each other in, uh, in the same room. We have all the equipment. We will be able uh, to do that. It will certainly have a lot of it coming from what's happening on the ground in France. We want to give you a little flavor, not just the scores and the games, but what we're going through and the adventures that we are having on a daily basis. It will also include what's going on with Gold Cup, so it won't be just limited to, uh, to Women's World Cup, but obviously we will be knee-deep in what's going on over there in, uh, in France. And we hope that you all that are listening will also be knee-deep. And my uh, one big thing from today's podcast is, look, I know that at times, even in today's podcast, there were some of you that may have uh, tuned out uh, and not wanted me or Mossy or us on this pod to spend much time or talk a whole lot about the women's game in general or about our women's national team or about the World Cup or anything like that. As I said a few weeks ago on one of my State of the Union podcasts, I do believe that the American soccer fan, and many of you are American soccer fans and part of this American soccer culture, and there's plenty of listeners out there that aren't, but when it comes to the American soccer fan, I think that, that they are uh, the most educated and that means that their, that their landscape uh, and their palette of sports uh, and when their palette of soccer uh, is wide and deep. And when it comes to our uh, women's national team, I, this isn't us pandering, and I know we broadcast it, but we would be doing this even if we didn't broadcast it because it is an important part of the summer for American soccer, that it involves... Women just happens to involve women, but we have a soccer team, and I'd like to think that everybody out there is soccer fans, a soccer team that is taking the field, representing what I feel is the greatest country in the world, and doing it through soccer, which is the game that I feel is the greatest game in the world. And I'm excited about it. I hope you are. 
if you're not, I guarantee at some point this summer, it will draw you in. It might be because of a goal that was scored. It might be because of an interview that was given. It might be because you're fascinated. And as I said in the State of the Union, it might be because you're angry or you're curious. Uh, and that's, that's a good thing. Don't, don't fight that. All right? This is all soccer. Men's, women's, co-ed naked. As long as somebody's kicking a ball, if you truly love the sport, you will gravitate toward it. And I'm telling you right now, a World Cup, and in this case it's going to be a Women's World Cup, it has something for everyone. And it will find you, maybe when you least expect it. And it will be wonderful. And it doesn't mean you're going to turn into the greatest women's soccer fan out there and that's all that you're going to digest, but it will become part of your palate. And you will be better off as a soccer person for it. Don't fight it. As a matter of fact, you can't fight it. And I look forward to seeing that happen to thousands of people out there that at this moment don't know. Some that are listening, many others that aren't there, that, will, uh, that it will grab them in ways that I can predict and many ways that I can't. Mossy, anything else before we head off? into the, uh, the great unknown over there, which is uh, France and the World Cup this summer. Only that from now on, I'd like to be referred to as Emmy winner. <laughs> I'm actually going to change that officially to my name. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, uh, the next time you hear our voices, we will be in Paris, France, bringing you each and every day the happenings on and off the field of the Women's World Cup as we start out this incredible summer of soccer on Fox that includes the Women's World Cup that uh, is going to finish off the Under-20 World Cup and that it includes also the Gold Cup. So, you have something else to say? I felt like you had something else to Avoir say. Avoir a biento. Ooh. That means goodbye, see you soon. You look very sexy right now when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For my uh, Emmy Award winning partner, David Mossy, uh, thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us yet again on the podcast. Uh, we will uh, speak to you next from France. As always, size the day.